You guys didn't know that Pastor Damien played drums, did you? He, he says he doesn't, but that's okay. I, I love the flexibility when we have people coming in and out of town and taking time. It's, it's awesome that our worship team fills in different ways and uh, appreciate what they do. And you may want to talk to the members of the worship team and thank them um, from time to time for what they do. They spend a lot of time uh, working and doing, doing ministry. If we read the speeches of King's presidents and generals during times of war, we find a very interesting fact. Most of these leaders attempted to mobilize their people to battle by the assertion that God is on our side. This phrase was prominent in the speeches given by the German leaders during both world wars. It was even inscribed on their helmets, Gott mit uns, or God with us. Germany, of course, is not the only nation that justified its actions with the phrase, God is on our side. Many people have sought to enlist God's help, insisting he is German or British or American or whatever he is. And when we say God is on my side, we can rationalize doing whatever we please, justifying any action, deceiving ourselves into thinking that God is on our side. During the Civil War in America, both sides claimed God's help. President Abraham Lincoln, after anguishing about this divided nation that he was leading, said this, the key issue is not whether God is on my side, but whether I am on God's side. Not is God on my side, but am I on God's side? Of course, today we find certain athletic teams who claim God is on their side, therefore they win. And of course, if that was the case, neither the Seahawks nor Packers must have had God on their side this last season because, well, well, we'll leave that right there. The key question is not, is God on my side? The key question is, am I on God's side? Today, as we continue our series on Joshua, the series entitled Choose to Stand, we'll be looking at another text from this ancient book. The Israelites are in the middle of a military campaign to take the land and to subdue it. Their battles are not based on the premise that God is on their side, but that they are on God's side, carrying out God's commands. As we look at this passage, I want us to ask three questions. Number one, am I on God's side? Am I on God's side? Am I lining up with the character, the will, and the commands of God? Number two, what happens when I'm on God's side? What battles, what challenges, and what what obstacles can I expect? And three, does God care? Does he care? Will he help me when I need help? Today, God rules. I'd like you to turn with me to Joshua, the 10th chapter. It's page 176 if you're looking for it in the Bible in the rack in front of you. Joshua 10, we're gonna read the first 15 verses of Joshua 10 this morning. Now, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and his king what he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty peace with Israel and were living near them. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like the, one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all its men were good fighters. 
So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Shephiah, king of Lachish and Debir, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, the Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal, do not abandon your servants. Come up to help us quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I've given them into your hand. Not one of, you, of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, who defeated them in a great victory at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road, up, going up to Beth Horon, and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel on the road down to Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky. And more of them died from hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O son, stand still over Gibeon, O moon over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. As it is written in the book of Jashar, the sun stopped in the middle of the day, middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since a day when the Lord listened to a man, surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Five Canaanite kings have become very frightened by the alliance Joshua made with the Gibeonites. So they unite together to declare war on Gibeon. And Gibeon, since they're now allied with Israel, immediately calls for help from Israel. Joshua, assured by God of victory, came up from Gilgal, his base, and defeated the enemy and pursued them. Then came one of these greatest battles of all time. God intervened on behalf of his people. He sent hailstones, and God delayed nightfall and lengthened the day, all so that the victory could be complete. So what? What can we learn from this passage? What can we learn from this story today? First thing... Number one is that when on God's side, we will face opposition. When on God's side, we will face opposition. The, the land of Canaan was controlled by evil, godless people who would not give it up without a fight. And Israel threatened their livelihood, their lifestyle, their possessions, even their lives. And there was guaranteed opposition. Opposition. How do I know if I'm on God's side? First of all, we need to ask the question, what characteristics are part of my life if I'm on God's side? We look at on God's side, we're living out the character of God. Who is this God that we represent? We can look at the fruits of the Spirit, which describe love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, self-control. We look at justice, mercy, and grace. We look at the character of God. And what are the character qualities of God? And if we have these character qualities, 
are we going to have opposition? Secondly, we are on God's side when we're living out the commands of God. We think about the Ten, ten Commandments as part of the commands of God, or, or the Jesus' expansion of the Ten Commandments of the Sermon on the Mount, which moves all the Ten Commandments from external observable actions to internal attitudes and, and things that we think and, and, and uh, all the attitudes that we have. Biblical mandates and guidelines. There's morality, there's right and wrong, there's truth, there's righteousness. If we practice those, then we are lining up with God's character and God's commands. And that's something that we always have to say. Am I lining up with God? Am I on God's side? On God's side, we're on God's side when we're following the will of God. Now that's the subjective nature of being on God's side. And that's the application of truth and righteousness and justice and God's values as it informs and relates to our daily life. And when we're living this kind of life in the, in the character commands and the will of God, internally and externally, then we can say, I am God on God's side. How do we get to know that? Well, we get to know that from the word of God, obviously. But we can say genuinely, yes, I am on God's side. And when we're on God's side, living according to his character and commands and will, we will face opposition. We're going to face opposition. By our very lifestyle and actions, we threaten many people who are opposed to righteousness and holiness. Now, in America today, people are not content to just let us believe or even just to communicate our beliefs. They're so threatened, they want to silence our beliefs. And some of you have experienced that at your workplace, in your school. Maybe you've taken a class in college or whatever it is. If you express these kinds of beliefs and that, that you are on God's side, Judeo-Christian ethics and values, whatever that is, you are going to experience opposition. Some call this the culture war. It's been going on a long time. By the way, this was going on in their day as well as our day. It's always gone on. There's always been a war against God's side. What are some of the issues that we experience here? One of the most prevalent and most, uh, the most obvious ones in America today is abortion. Abortion. The Bible is very clear, and science can now affirm that life begins at conception. There's no question life begins at conception. And, and what do we have we have opposition to that stand. And of course, we're trying to do everything we can. There's the, the Infant Pain Act. There's the heartbeat bills. Uh, all of the things that are coming. There's a, there's a sea change, and there is a pendulum swing very slowly right now. The, the movies that were released in the last year, Gosnell, which exposed uh, infanticide. Uh, the movie Unplanned, which is an expose of Planned Parenthood. In the fall, there's going to be a movie called Roe v. Versus Wade. It's coming out in the fall. All of these tell the truth, but they don't come out without opposition. There's always opposition. These movies and these stands and, and where we stand on these cultural issues, these moral issues, bring opposition. Opposition. Is there opposition? Absolutely. What about same-sex marriage? Some of you have experienced that coming out of the the battle in the United Methodist Church. It's a battle now. It happened in the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church USA. It's happened in other denominations, in the, some of the Lutheran denominations. The United Methodist Church just now, worldwide, just voted to affirm traditional marriage, biblical marriage, by 56% to 
Let me tell you something. The majority of the people who voted for that were the product of missions emphasis and missions effort by the United Methodist Church in Africa, overseas. And they, as worldwide representatives, voted overwhelmingly to affirm traditional marriage. Had it been just in this country, it's like the missionaries' work saved the United Methodist Church. It's amazing. Now there's a huge split going on. But there's a battle. There's opposition when we line up with God. God's stand on traditional marriage. Gender dysphoria or gender confusion. The role of religion in public, public life. Prayer in public spaces. We know of a coach that after the, after the games on the peninsula in Bremerton, Washington, football coach, at the end of the game, with no pressure from anybody else, he'd go out in the middle of the field and... and just pray. He'd kneel at, at, at the 50-yard line and pray. And students would join him if they wanted to, whatever. Well, he lost his job. He's never been able to get it back again. Is there opposition when we line up with God? Yes, there is. There's opposition. Celebration of Christmas or other Christian holidays. There's one thing that we can be guaranteed of, and that's something called Persecution. And just, just last, last week, Easter Sunday, over 300 people were killed in Sri Lanka in bombings of Christian churches. And the media makes a big thing, and, and you should never be afraid to, to go to your place of worship, whether it's, it's a Jewish synagogue, which, was, bought, which was, uh, was shot up yesterday, or a Muslim place of worship, or a Christian place of worship. But somehow, the Christian places of worship being shot up and bombed get very little attention on the media. Persecution of Christians. Are we going to have opposition? Yes, we are. Opposition, persecution. When you line up with God, you're going you're to have truth. And that's the big battleground. What is truth? What is truth? And if you believe in truth, Christians are labeled as narrow-minded and bigoted. They, they, they call you haters because you believe something that's true. They say, be open-minded. Be open-minded. The problem is, if you're too open-minded, your brains fall out. Just saying. The key word tolerance is tolerance, which says, basically, we believe in, you say, I'm, I'm tolerant of you. That means it doesn't matter what you believe. That's not love. But they take that to mean everybody has to accept all beliefs as equal. That's not tolerance, that's stupidity. Personally, when you are on God's side, trying to live right, walking with God, you may face opposition personally, or you may face personal battles in your own life. Battling maybe a particular sin, or dealing with depression, haunted by past mistakes or failure, maybe dealing with fear, financial problems, or addictions. See, when we get serious with God, the battles intensify. When we really line up with God and we follow Him, when we're on God's side, the battles will intensify. Count on it. If we're not making inroads into Satan's kingdom, we'll be left alone. But the minute you start taking God seriously and invading Satan's territory, be aware, you will have opposition. How do we deal with that opposition? How do we, how do we deal with that? Because I'm sure that everybody here has experienced this kind of opposition in some capacity in your life. How do we deal with that? Well, 
How did they deal with it? How did these guys deal with it? Well, number two, when on God's side, we must establish communication with God. We must establish communication with God. Let me tell you where I got that. There's one word that occurs five times in this chapter. That word is Gilgal. Gilgal. Gilgal means a place of remembrance. They came from Gilgal to do battle. They returned to Gilgal halfway through the battle. Then they returned to Gilgal after the battle. Gilgal represents the place where they communicated with God. It's a place of meeting. It's a place of establishing relationship. It's a place to maintain contact with the living God. Now, the name Gilgal, that's kind of this abstract area or place in Israel. But our Gilgal, our place of remembrance is very significant. Our Gilgal is the place we established a relationship with God. It's where we established and began that relationship with God. And the place where we meet God, where all of us meet God, the only place we can meet God is Calvary, the foot of the cross. Is that the cross? The cross represents Gilgal. That's why we use the cross to remember. It's a remembrance, a place of remembrance. We just celebrate a Good Friday and Easter. Calvary is a hill just outside of Jerusalem where Jesus died for us so that he could establish that relationship with us to establish that relationship, to open up that and initiate that communication with God. Our Gilgal, the place of remembrance, the cross. The cross represents a place where Jesus died for our sins. Jesus established the means for us to talk to God directly. Our means of knowing God, and it's, it's the means of delivering us from the enemy. The place of remembrance, Gilgal. The cross, this is a place where we receive new life. And if you are here this morning and have never come to know God personally, that's where it starts. Because at the cross, we say, I'm going to lay down every, all my own self-effort, my effort to please God, and admit I can't do it, and admit that Jesus had to die for me, and accept that gift. That's the place of beginning of a communication or relationship with God. That's a place we establish relationship. We also need a place where we have an ongoing relationship. That's for, this is present. The, the initial relationship is past for most of us. Now we need a place where we have an ongoing relationship. And let me ask you a question. On an ongoing relationship, do you all have a Gilgal? Do you have a Gilgal? Yes, we've come to know Jesus some recently, some many years ago, but in the face of our battles today, do we have a place where we meet with God? And I'm not talking about just meeting with God in church. It's great that we're all here together. It's awesome that we can come together, we can celebrate together, support one another, pray for one another, get to know people, all of that's awesome. But do you personally meet consistently with God. A place, a time. Could be morning, it could be night. Is there a place where a, a study or a family room or an office? Maybe a favorite outdoor park where you go and you talk with God? A place and time to read God's word and to actually meditate on it, to pray and to think. In order, in order for us to be on God's side, we must communicate with God and allow him to communicate with us. 
We have to maintain that communication. And Gilgal represents that ongoing place of communicating with God. And sometimes we wonder, am I, am I on God's side or not? Talk to him. Read his word. Take some time. I know some of you are saying, I got little kids at home. It's easier said than done. Well, you know, there's a, John Wesley is the founder of this denomination. His, his mother, Susanna Wesley, had nine children, okay? And uh, she found a way to get away and pray, okay? She would take her apron and she would lift it over her head and cover her head and face and go to prayer. And the children were instructed, never bother mama when she's praying in her apron, okay? Maybe you need one of those kinds of places, an apron, I don't know, whatever you need. It's like, we can, we can look at all kinds of excuses why we don't communicate with God. If Susanna Wesley can do it, we, we can do it. We can do it. Joshua continually went back to Gilgal to meet with God. We must have a Gilgal where we meet with God. And then coming from Gilgal, after that communication, God gives some commands and Joshua obeys God. When we're on God's side, we, we will face opposition. That's number one. On God's side, we must establish communication with God. And number three, when on God's side, we must obey God. We must obey God. Now, the, the first command in this passage is very interesting, verse eight. It says, do not be afraid. Now, now you think that was an exhortation or encouragement? No, it was a command. There are several cases in Joshua where God says, do not be afraid, and it wasn't an option. It wasn't this thing. He says, do not be afraid. It's a command. Do not be afraid. I have given them into your hand. What was the basis of God's command, do not be afraid? He knew what he was going to do. See, see with God, there's no past, present, and future. When Jesus was asked who he is, he said, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. I am. Everything is now. See, God is not limited by time or space. We're limited by history, present. We can't get to the future yet, all those other things. God is not limited. We, we like to watch those movies like Back to the Future or these, these time travel movies that you go into different places, go back in history or whatever. And the danger of time travel is that you might change history. That's always a, kind of the risk. Well, that's what God does. He does change history because he's not limited by time. What gives God the right to say to us, do not fear, because he already knows the future. He's already there. And no matter whether you're experiencing a personal challenge of unemployment or retirement or difficult marriage or health crisis, financial obstacles, family issues, conflict with children, failing health, loneliness and isolation, whatever it has, God knows the future. And he says to us, he commands us, do not be afraid. Now, one of my favorite passages of scripture, my life, one of my life, actually my life verse is found in Matthew 6. And I just want to read it to you. I don't have it on the screen, I don't think, but probably know it pretty well. Matthew 6, 25 to 34. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? 
Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about the clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you, of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall I eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. Your father knows that you need them, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Do not fear. You, you may need to read that once a day if you're going through a real crisis. I'm going to read every morning. I'm going to read Matthew 6. That's okay. You, we need reminders. We need reminders that we do not fear. We should not fear. Do not be afraid. Secondly, he says, take the offensive. Take the offensive. After an all-night march, they took him by surprise. Take the offensive. Act. When, when facing opposition, whatever form it takes, if you have established communication with God, he will tell you what to do, when to do it, then move forward in faith. God told Joshua, go forward, I've already won for you. Now Joshua wasn't a weather forecaster. He didn't know about the hail coming, I'm sure. Not that that would have made any difference. That weather forecasting is one of the only jobs that you can be wrong 70% of the time and still keep your job. But that's, that's a whole nother. I'm sorry if you're a weather forecaster. Or if you're related to someone, it's just, it's uncertain. He didn't know this was coming, but God did. God said, I've already won. He didn't tell him what he was going to do. Joshua didn't have to know. He just trusted God. And he took action. He took the offensive. He moved forward. You may need to be proactive today. Maybe there's a particular sin that you've been dealing with for a long time and you need to take action. Maybe you've been dealing with unforgiveness for many, many years and bitterness. Take action. Maybe you've been straddling the fence for a long time. Take action. Call sin, sin. Take action against it. Declare war on sin. We need to declare war on sin, whether it's in our personal life, in the church, in our city, or the nation. Why shouldn't we just let people live their own lives? Well, we look at the destruction that sin wreaks on the lives of people, and we must take action. Alan Redpath writes, there will be no victory in your life until you declare total war against everything in your life that is sinful. Let me say that again. There will be no victory in your life until you declare war, total war, against everything in your life that is sinful. There will be no personal experience of the true power of Jesus Christ and the victory until I declare war on sin. Declaring war on sin. We must hate sin as much as God does. We must take his same attitude. Not judging other people, but looking at what sin does in our lives and the lives of other people and saying, I am so hateful of sin. Sin is so destructive. Not people. Sin. Sin. Take the offensive. Letter C, be persistent. By verse 11 of this account, the Israelites had won a great victory, but Joshua was not done. He was not satisfied. He wanted total victory. So Joshua makes this great 
statement of faith. Great statement of faith. O sun, stand still over Gibeon. O moon, over the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. As it is written in the book of Jashar, the sun stopped in the middle of the day, delaying going down about a full day. Wow, this was not stop the world, I want to get off. This was stop the world, I want to finish the job. Being persistent. There's a persistence that sometimes we're, we kind of settle for half victory. I will never forget. You know, there, you know how there are certain games that just stick out in your mind? Might be a baseball game or World Series game or Super Bowl game, football game, whatever. There are certain games that, that stick out. And the ones that stick out most in my mind is, are, are the games that the, they never gave up. They never gave up. And you probably remember this game because it was really remarkable. This, it was a finish of a game led, of course, by Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers. They were down, I think, by about four points. I know that they were not able to tie it or win by a field goal. And they were on the 50-yard line, and time ran out. But there was a penalty on that last play. And you can't end the game on a penalty. You guys probably remember this game. They got one more play, and you know, Aaron Rodgers never gives up. And as we see, the final play, with time expired, there was a Hail Mary pass into the end zone. Many of you, how many of you saw that game? Okay, who was it that caught the pass? Jordan, what? Richard, okay, yeah. There we go, and the game was over, because Aaron didn't give up. The Packers won. Now, last season wasn't that good, but that game was awesome, incredible. Well, in our Christian life, sometimes we settle for partial victory or status quo. John Huffman says a commitment to the status quo provides a more placid, easygoing lifestyle. It's just easier. It's just easier. Just kind of go with the flow. We say, don't be too radical and don't be too persistent. I've won enough. I'm comfortable. I'm on my way to heaven. Joshua said no. I want total victory. He prayed publicly that God would extend daylight hours. This is the first known incident historically of daylight savings time. Just so you know. I've, I've told the story to some individuals. I, I'll say it. Right out of college, I taught school in a small town in rural western North Dakota, a town called Richardson. And this rural community is made mostly of ranchers and farmers. And Richardson was on the very eastern edge of mountain time zone. And one summer, the town council voted to move not just to mountain daylight savings time, but to central daylight savings time. So they moved the clocks two hours to try it for a summer. Now, as the story was told to me, some people loved it because they could play golf till 10 or 11 at night. Other people hated it. And it caused such an incredible uproar in town that everybody was choosing sides for or against this, this change they had made. Local business establishments started putting up two different clocks in each place, one for each time zone to try to keep everybody happy. So they finally called a town meeting. After a lot of discussion, one farmer, thinking he, he had the, the answer, he complained. He said, that his crops couldn't take the extra two hours of sunlight every day. 
Now, if I have to explain that to you, you should move to Indiana or Arizona where they don't change their clocks twice a year, but that's, that's another thing. Well, Joshua, in the middle of everybody, said, oh, sun, stand still. Now, that doesn't fly in the face. We know that the earth rotates on the axis, et cetera. Even scientists today speak of the sun rising and setting. But basically, he declared the stoppage of the rotation of the earth. Why? The key to victory was persistence, and he needed more daylight. Joshua was not content to have partial victory. He wanted complete victory. And what a statement he made. We should never stop until we've had complete victory, personal victory in our church, family, or nation. When we are on God's side, we will have opposition. We are to establish communication. We must obey God. And number four, when on God's side, when we are on God's side, God will act on our behalf. This calls for total reliance on God. We still resist that. Our whole journey in life is from self-reliance to reliance on God. Independence to dependence. And if you resist that as much as I do, there's this battle constantly going back and forth. In verse 10, it says God confounded the enemy and, and confused them and pursued them. Verse 11, God threw hailstones on them. Now, I'm not proposing you call lightning or hailstones from heaven to strike your difficult boss, but, but it's just one of the things that God did here. God will act on your behalf. In verse 13, it says God extended the daylight hours. Now, when God acted on Israel's behalf, Israel saw it was God's work. But just as important, the Canaanites saw it was God's work. When we are on God's side and God acts on our behalf, we know it and our enemy knows it. See, they're not fighting us. They're fighting God. God acts on our behalf. God acts. Verse 14 says, the Lord listened to the voice of man. Wow. Isn't that Amazing. That, that actually is the definition of prayer. Prayer. God listening to the voice of man or woman. God listening to the prayer of a boy or girl. God listening to our voice. We pray. He listens. God listens to our voice, voice of people, our prayers. And he answers them. Thursday, we're going to have a prayer meeting, Thursday night, 6.30, here. It's the National Day of Prayer. And we're going to practice that. Just want to make sure that you know you're invited. We're going to take an hour and a half here to pray for our nation. Because when we pray, God listens. I know there are a lot of concerns we have about our nation. So many things to pray about. Our community, our churches, our leadership, our our political leaders, our president, his cabinet, Congress, all of those things. We need to pray. You may be in the middle of an incredible battle, whatever that might be, but God cares. He hears, and he will act on your behalf. When we get to the end of the chapter, we read what God did. Verse 42 says, because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for 
Israel. Don't try to fight these battles on your own. Let God fight them. And then in verse 43, it says they returned to Gilgal, where they started. Whose side are you on? When we are on God's side, we're going to face opposition. We are to establish that communication, obey God, and God will act on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are God. And we are not. And I just pray, Lord, that you would continue to challenge us in our lives. I just pray that, that, that we would realize that, that you've called us to line up with you. And I pray, God, that you'll give us that time and communication and understanding of how we can be on God's side. And that when we are, you act in miraculous ways on our behalf. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Let's stand, shall we?